Ahoy! And welcome to the Sea Captain Way podcast with Phil Bender and Greg Patton, where we help listeners navigate the uncharted waters, personal and professional growth. The Sea Captain Way is about energizing top performers to take on risks and push beyond their comfort zone to pursue life-changing goals and achieve peak performance. We're going to help you build your vision by showing you how to break free of boundaries that are holding you back. So, Phil, we're excited to have Scott Underwood, founder and CEO of Socium Advisors, on the Sea Captain Way podcast today. Scott was recently named one of Barron's top 1,200 financial advisors and has been recognized by Forbes as one of the best financial advisors in the country. He was also recently appointed to the Forbes Finance Council. Scott leads a team of 36 people at Socium Advisors who combine complementary skill sets to deliver comprehensive financial plans for individuals, families, and businesses all over the country. Welcome, Scott. Yeah, welcome, Scott. Good to have you on the Sea Captain Podcast. Man, this is exciting on so many levels for so many reasons. We've known each other for 30 years. And there's a lot of connections. And it, it, like many of our guests, there's baggage, as I like to say. <laughs> Very excited to be here. Very excited to be here. Yeah. So good to have you. And so good to have done some of the work that we've done together and in the future. It's very very exciting. So let's get started. You were recently repeated your accomplishment of being named as one of the Barron's top 1200 in the country. You've been recognized as being the number one producer in your firm, which is Northwestern Mutual. Socium Advisors currently has offices in St. Louis, DC, Fayetteville, Arkansas, and you're looking to add two more locations. Can you please share your thoughts about how you established the foundation for the success of this business? now more than 10 years ago? So I have spent, Socium uh, as the entity that it is today is 10, a little over 10 years old. I have got tenure in the industry of just over 30 years. And I spent that first 20 of it really on the defensive risk management side of it with Northwestern, selling life insurance, disability insurance, all the catastrophic risk products. And 2009, 10, I really saw when a post-market correction, I saw so many clients that just felt defenseless and had seen it for a long time where clients were in a position where they felt like they had so many cooks in the kitchen. They had insurance people and they had multiple investment people and they had people that were handling benefits, whether they were employed or they owned their own company. And it was just too many people. And so I really wanted to establish a firm that focused around the planning. It was agnostic to products. It was focused on planning, and which we have found over the years has made the product selection and management much, much easier because it makes sense. Once you have that blueprint put together and you're able to then establish what products need to bring that plan to life, it makes it far easier to evaluate and then continue to monitor those things in it. So that was really the whole premise around Socium was to provide that comprehensive agnostic, product agnostic financial planning. So as I entered into it, really my first jump was, hey, if we're going to take stewardship of people's money... I better have the same level of expertise on the investment side that I had acquired over 20 years on the insurance side. And really, there's two ways to do that. You either either develop the skill or you hire the skill. And I had massive growth expectations and felt like 
at least in our system that in the Northwestern system, that we could collaboratively work together. And so part of the premise that I also had and part of my thesis was we could go further, faster together. And so where nobody in the company had to that point established a real true business model around joint work, joint work had always been and collaborative work for client planning had always been, hey, I got a guy, can you help me in this tactical situation? And I had a bigger vision of it that I knew the, and I had projected what kind of expenses for staffing and software and the delay of revenue that would come in on the investment side, that I felt like the vast majority of people either didn't want to deal with large businesses staffing-wise or didn't have the wherewithal to make the financial investment to do it. So my thesis was, I will make the investment into that deliverable, and your part of the partnership is delivering cases systematically. And so we established you know, what the ground rules of really true partnership, not even joint work, but really true partnership with other advisors within the system, and that we promised that we would deliver the best in money management and the best in financial planning that, that we possibly could, and they deliver the cases. So my first launch was then to go find that talent. And I was lucky enough to be to find Michelle, Michelle Magner, who's now a full equity partner, first non-contracted female equity partner in our system. And she was managing about two, two and a half billion dollars of money for a regional trust company at the time as a portfolio manager. So I hired her away from the bank and she came in and run, ran our entire investment platform. And I learned most of my investment knowledge through and with her. And she immediately gave us the depth and breadth of knowledge on the investment side that I had acquired on the insurance side. And together, we built what our financial planning model was going to look like and what our go-to-market strategy was going to be. So that's really how we envisioned it in doing this collaboratively. Obviously, I had a big client base and developed some of the clients on my own. But I felt with partnering with particular types of reps, some on the younger side that didn't have the ability to make the investment, some on the older side that felt like they didn't have the time to recoup the investment or didn't just simply want to change the way that they practice, but had established relationships with clients over 25, 30 plus years, that they were already vetted by their clients. And so it made the client acquisition process much, much quicker because we were already vetted because their rep had decided that, you know, had vetted us as their partner and thus were able to sign off with their clients. And so that was really the whole thesis of how we were going to go to market, both in our strategy with clients, as well as how we would acquire those clients. So interesting, you know, that you have this expertise, but you either have to develop it or hire it. And knowing in some cases what your clients, how they may have viewed you, hiring it was probably a nice way to go about it because you immediately have that. It's like going to the free agent market and finding somebody you can throw 98 miles an hour and close a game, right? But in that space. And so that's excellent. So Scott, you started Socium Advisors in 2009, right after the 2008 financial crisis I think when Warren Buffett said the economy went off a cliff, and you mentioned previously that one of the things that motivated you to start your own firm was that you were tired of transactional business and you wanted to focus on what you called real client work and not just product sales. What have been some of the highlights in your journey since you started your own business? Well, over that period of time, part of the reason for that was the directionless fear that I saw in many clients that in the midst of a storm, 
they had no idea where they were going or where they would end up or what the result of that financial crisis was going to be. A lot of it led, you know, what led up to it was a lot of the lack of planning to that point and the preparation for the storm and how fearful clients were. And it was really, it was a, one, it was an oddly enough, it seems to be a great time to have entered the business. One, because of that very fact. But two is, is that when there is a crisis, people evaluate their planning and, you know, major life events, you know, oftentimes cause people to at least get a second opinion on things. And so we found that people were very receptive to looking at a different strategy. And the fact that our go-to-market strategy was really thoughtful planning, agnostic to the products of what does everything in your financial life packaged together need to do? How does insurance and mortgages and 401ks and wealth accumulation and college planning and you know life expectancy, how does all that boil together to create a plan that works when things are really good and things it works when things are really bad? Was it was actually a really, really good time to to enter the business. And the way that we were entering it, you know, time has been a great litmus test that it has proven to be a very solid strategy. We've lived through COVID crisis. We lived through 2018 in a down market. We're obviously living through 2022. And it's a great litmus test for us to do reviews with clients and being able to go back to that financial plan and be able to show the effects of market conditions. And the market conditions experience also tells us that, or has taught us over time, that a lot of how we educate and manage clients is what are the things that we are doing when times are really good to prepare for when things are really bad? That up is not a one-way street. Down is not forever. And, you know, I always tease that sometimes it's a little bit like Aesop's fable and that in the ant and the grasshopper, that when times are really good, to store away a little bit of those excess gains and to protect some of those things to prepare for when winter comes sometimes is really difficult for clients to do of like, man, this is good. It's always going to be that way. And we know that it's not. But the coaching and the behavioral finance of that, when things go bad, then the response is, boy, I'm really, really glad that we took the steps that we did when we did. And I feel really good about where we are. And it softens the blow. And it puts clients into a place where I think that they can feel like they are being collaborative in their planning process and they are not being emotionally reactive and thus making good quantitative decisions about their planning. And so I think it's understanding that big picture and being able to communicate that with clients and that the bad times are managed by what you do in the good times, not the reactionary moves that you make during bad times. Yeah. And people have short memories. You know, they have short memories around their goals uh, that they've stated. They have a short memory around market change. And by putting together planning, Greg, like Scott does, his team is able to remind them of those good times and therefore not to react in a reactive behavior when things are not going well. And that takes a lot of management. It's sort of like back when you were dating on match, Greg, it was like, now that you've got a girlfriend, you know, you now see that up market from before. And so uh, Scott's team's just helping managing that, that out. It's a good point because any, you know, we've all read the data. We've all read articles and research on it that you can look at the markets and long-term wealth accumulation analytically as much as you want. But the number one determinant, success or failure, is investor behavior. 
you know, why we kind of deem it behavioral finance is that, you know, you can teach all the analytics, but in the end, emotion will trump logic. And so the idea of finding that right space of how to help a client manage their decision making so that they're not overreacting either during good times or during bad times gives you a much greater opportunity for success with clients because you've put them into this this state in a planning relationship that allows them to strip out as much as possible the emotion. It doesn't mean that there's not anxiety when things are like they've been for the last 18 months. But, you know, you can look at it even as current as today. If you look at investor sentiment today, investor sentiment is horrible right now. Evidence of how much, you know, what investors are saying, evidence of how much cash is on the sidelines. And if you look at it, the NASDAQ's up 26% year to date through six months, and the S&P's up 14%. And you would think that we were in the middle of a market crash when you talk to most clients. Yeah. It's so it is so much psychology and so much therapy involved in that in that process. And Greg, one of the things that I admire most about Scott is always vision visioning, always client centric and always team centric. So let's maybe touch on that a little bit. When you decided, okay, I'm going to build this thing out, build it out in a bigger mousetrap. Okay. There was a lot involved in that. Okay. Not everybody you spoke with initially was supportive of it. Okay. This vision for your firm. You had previous business partners didn't necessarily work out. What was your vision and strategy of how you would build a team that was capable of delivering on your goals for your clients? What was that vision? Well, one of the big pieces of the vision, well, a handful of pieces to it, but one of them was that my view of most of the investment industry is, is that it was viewed at the time much in the scarcity mentality. There's only so many seats on this bus, and so I can only hold so many clients. And so there was this process that I saw with clients, why they ended up with so many advisors, because clients grew faster than the advisor. They needed to change advisors. The advisor grew faster than the client. The advisor fired the client. So they were in constant rotation of of advisors. And my vision was like, if somebody is going to give us stewardship and trust us with their money and their planning, then they can't be a short-term commodity to us. We have to build an organization that allows us to service them, even if the people within the organization may change over time based on those growth patterns. We had to have a consistent deliverable planning message that allowed a client to establish a relationship with a firm and not a single advisor. And then coupled behind that was the two diametrically different models of the two businesses. So we wanted to be able to comprehensively plan for a client that placed equal emphasis and weight on wealth accumulation as well as the catastrophic risk planning. Well, as we know, on the investment side, most investment advisors will tell you that the capacity of an advisor is 250 to 300 clients. That's all you can see if you're seeing them on a quarterly review basis. And so that's the capacity of that firm or that advisor. On the insurance side, they tell you that it's 1,200 clients and there's a frequency of purchase that happens every few years, but you read through those tea leaves and they basically tells you that you're working with 250 to 300 clients every four to five years. But 
you have to have this 1200 client base and adding 50 a year because there's a certain amount that saturate that you have to have that ongoing client building process. But if you were going to comprehensively plan, how do you take these two diametrically different service models and put them into an atom smasher? And so how do you provide investment services to 1200 clients that are our insurance clients? And that was really the challenge. And so the whole model was around, we have to build a team and you have to build a team that was different than most in financial services. I think most of it has you know, historically been built around, I'm the smartest guy in the room and therefore I possess all the knowledge and everyone else around me is simply there to push paperwork. And I took a very different approach, evidenced by the hiring of Michelle. And my deal was I want to be the least smart guy in the room. I love, you know, Steve Jobs approach that we hire very smart people and have them tell us what to do, not hire smart people and tell them what to do. So I built that really on very humble beginnings of let's build a really, really thoughtful, very, very smart team and build service teams around clients that we would not outgrow clients and that we would press the growth and the capabilities of our staff to where a client couldn't outgrow us. And so that gave us largely unlimited capacity with that model being that we had to adjust the model as we got larger over time to have efficient service and workflow modeling. And we're still adjusting it today as we continue to grow. But the model itself of having clients with the relationship with the firm and that we were committed to a long-term relationship with clients and committed to the fact that we were going to put the best, most intellectual people we could in place and that they couldn't outgrow us, allowed us then to deal with the other side of it is when we outgrew our certain advisors in the firm, outgrew clients, how were we able to maintain the quality of advice to those clients without having to get quote unquote, get rid of or fire any clients. So that was really the premise of how we approached the challenge. And it is a real challenge. I don't think very many in the industry have figured it out of how to provide both. Well, and one of the things, Greg, that around some of the project work that Scott and I have done together is I continue to learn how to crack some of this code for some of the advisors and salespeople that I coach because he does see things about five, six steps ahead. And is not afraid to go against the grain in this pursuit. It's a real gift he has. Yeah, that's cool how you've built out your team. There's a New York Times series that they call Great Reads, and they'll send an article out that was one of the best articles that have appeared over the last couple of months. And one of them was a story about EMTs in New York City and a guy that had a a French businessman who had a heart attack in Manhattan. And they're like, if he would have gone down in any other part of the city, it would have been a different outcome. But the way the team came together and communicated with the hospital, one of the lines in the article said, so began the organic wonder of a team. And it was so cool to see how everybody had their specialization and came in and, and stepped into their role. So um, I really bow to you for how you've, you know, what did somebody say if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room? <laughs> Something to that. So Scott, I recently watched a training session where you participated in with Phil and you talked about the expansion of your staff of four team members to 12 as your assets under management grew. And you shared advice that you've seen young growing practices bring in two or three people who are critical to the business and they wind up getting held hostage by them is the way you put it. Can you expand on what you mean by that? Yeah. So 
you know, I think all practices, but certainly within the Northwestern, I have seen over my 30 years that, quite frankly, it is really tough on an individual producer to have the resources to source train and then monitor employees. And and quite honestly, as a small one, two, three, four employee practice, it's a very, very painful part of the business. You don't feel productive doing it. And so what I have seen, and even, you know, as the business has gotten more and more sophisticated, it has become increasingly difficult for advisors to train their staff. And so what I kind of mean by that is, for the purpose of, I don't want to feel that pain, I have tended to see that a lot of times what you end up with is staff that is significantly overpaid by market valuation and generally significantly undertrained or undercapable of their job. But so the practice kind of becomes to be, I use the term held hostage in that they're like, hey, I these are my terms for continuing to work. And the pushback of the pain of losing somebody and having to go rehire somebody, retrain them and get somebody back up to speed is more painful than just simply overpaying and dealing with some stuff. So one of the things that we did as we grew was we made every job, once we got to our kind of baseline service model, we rehired every job so that there was redundancy in those jobs. So that if somebody was on vacation Somebody didn't work out. Somebody didn't grow or develop with the firm the way that we were hoping to. That regardless of what the situation of why an employee either had to be replaced or whether it was by their choice or ours, or they were out on maternity or they were out for an illness or a family situation, we wanted to make certain firm could continue to operate. But we had a the baseline of a good business model that we could manage that all the way consistently all the way through our growth model, and we didn't end up with radically different compensation models for certain job titles. Yeah. And it's so true when I see, you know, almost, you almost take your people through a rotation when they first come on board, like you would in a corporation, right? Where they learn, it's like being a choir, Greg, where you have to hear everybody who's singing. You can't just sing yourself. You've got to be able to hear everybody so you can keep the harmony, so you can keep the consistency and the timing. And so I think what you've done masterfully there is work in that space. And back to vision for a second, because I always just get so excited about some of the things you share. Share your thoughts about the importance of having integrators. Okay. For those of you who are familiar with traction or rocket fuel, you'll understand what an integrator is. And can you share your thoughts about the importance of having integrators on your team, those who have the unique skill to set up and implement and follow through on mission critical activities to achieve the vision for the firm? Yeah, it's, I think that goes largely overlooked. And I think some of the places that it gets overlooked or the reason that it gets overlooked is there is, there is a massive difference between being a great salesperson and being a great business owner and running a company. And I think that oftentimes that people think that it's synonymous or it's just inherently like, well, you've been a great salesperson all the, you know, all these years. Why wouldn't you be a great leader of a company? And the skill set is so master, so different. And, you know, I found a lot of it was is that early on, I recognized the need for certain things to take place in a growing company 
and things that I absolutely disliked doing or just flat out didn't have a skill set to do. Much of that was around hiring and creating real career paths, employee reviews, a lot of the employee internal things like that. I just was not good at. I was a head down, hard charging sales guy run through a brick wall. And it was tough for me to understand how anybody else on the planet could have a different view of their job than that. It was just, it was so foreign to me. So when we got to about six people and I recognized that we probably were going to need to hire three to five more people in the next 12 to 18 months, my next hire was my first real kind of managerial hire, who's still with me today, who's our chief of staff and chief operating officer, that I hired somebody to come in and actually run all of that. So we had very organized ways to do employee reviews, so that we had an organized way to establish compensation and bonuses, that we had somebody to go to that would be able to source and do interviews like even basic skills, like you think, well, if you can interview a client about their financial planning, why wouldn't you be able to interview an employee for a job? And it is a totally different skill set. And so, and I recognized that early. And there were times that it was incredibly painful to spend those salaries or make that investment into the firm. But the ability, it is very difficult. I think impossible is not a good statement with it, but I think it's incredibly far-fetched in most cases to think that somebody with vision has the ability to implement the vision and they both have to coexist to really to get the type of growth that I can I'm a great macro planner I know what I want I know what it, what needs to happen to get there but then to get down at the granular operational level to to implement it not a skill set way too much frustration way too much intolerance for things and so Again, back to my earlier statement, you either you develop the skill set or you hire it. And for me, with the growth plans that I had, I wanted to make the investment and hire people that had the skill sets when I needed it. I didn't want to spend years developing the skill. And the reverse is also true. If you have somebody that's a great implementer, oftentimes they can't see far enough down the road to have any vision. So there's never any really substantial growth. And that's one of the ways that Mar and I, my chief operating officer, we butt heads a lot because I can't see the painstaking detail that needs to go on to implement things. And I get frustrated because she can't see beyond the hood ornament on the end of the, at the front of the car. But we have found great way to communicate and realize where's the middle ground between us and which has given us, I think, a lot of foundation to build as large and as fast as we've built. Yeah. And we're talking about large, Greg. We're talking about really in the last three years, you've gone from, correct me if I'm wrong, 400 million managed to almost 2 billion now in just that, in just that three-year period. So it's that, it's how do you build that hockey stick so that, you know, it, it seems like it's forever. And then all of a sudden, bang, just the last three, four years, you've seen exponential growth in the brand, in the firm, and all the more reason to have what I call executioners around you at all times, because they've got to do that work. Yeah. So Greg, one last question I'm going to ask, because it's deeply personal for me, having reconnected after really 20 years of being moving away, running my firm, we started in the same network office. So when we got together a couple of years ago, started talking again, the piece that always resonated with me, and I share this a lot with people, was you were always so centered around team and client experience. 
In fact, I very rarely, if ever, hear you talk about your own success. It's always about the success of the brand and success of the team. And so the team now striving to get better, delivering world-class client experience. Can you please speak about why this is so critical to the collective success and that your team always prioritizes process over sales? Yeah. Since I entered the business 30 years ago, and as we have you know, grown in the the last few years as exponentially as we have. And, you know, when I have fielded phone calls about a death claim, when I have watched people, you know, senior executive, powerful business owners tear up over the fact that they have reached the finish line with their planning, the sense of responsibility and stewardship of that is really unbelievable. And it is a responsibility that I've always taken very seriously. It's one that we focus on because as the organization gets larger, it gets harder and harder. You have to instill that in the organization. If that is just as simply a top-down message, it never permeates everywhere where it needs to be. And outside of the protection and the quality of your health, People's finances are the next closest thing. And in some cases, it is more important than their health. And, you know, the idea of in this day and age, having bad financial planning and being bad off financially it, it is a living disability. It is an unbelievable, horrifying state. I think that people, it's, it strikes real fear in people. And so, you know, the idea that from top to bottom, you know, we do hundreds and hundreds of thousands of transactions a year, and many of them I don't see. And so because the organization is the size that it is. So it's, it's incredibly important to me that my belief of how important the work that we do is has to permeate the organization. So people feel, you know, feels like every time they pick up the phone, you know, if somebody just blatantly, you know, blows off a, a beneficiary change on an insurance policy and the next phone call is that client died all of a sudden, you know, in an accident, like, the decisions that we make, the small decisions every day that we make with the wrong phone call have permanent re repercussions. And so the focus on making certain that people are confident, you know, and, and that's where I think that the work really is great service, great planning. There's, I think, too much emphasis in the industry about sending bottles of wine and client experiences and, you know, golf outings and things that are relationship building. You know, many of our clients are really, I believe, evidenced by the amount of client retention that we have, appreciate us being the professional that they need for, for us to be in the space that we're in. If we happen to build a friendship on top of it, that's fantastic. But nobody wants, everybody's talked to that guy that's, I can't really get rid of this advisor. I know he's terrible, but he's a, been a golfing buddy for 20 years. Like, that's not the relationship I wanted. I wanted respect of the clients that's been earned over years and years of great quality deliverables that we were the go-to person for their finances, period, end of story. And that is, has been and always will drive me and will drive the firm and anyone associated with it. Well, Greg, I think that's a great way to end this very important message. Yeah, I've noticed all of the people in your inner circle, including Scott, now they, they all, it's the accountability factor. That is the common denominator that seems to run across. And it's just so cool to see the value he places on that and how he works with his clients. There's a famous advertising man named Leo Burnett. He talked about 
bring together a group of like-minded people like you have. He said, we're looking for people with our shaped heads. <laughs> well, that that was probably a shot at both of us being bald, Greg, but oh, I'm no. not going to, I'm going to let that one go. I'm going to let that go. All right. Go. All right. All right. We'll edit that <laughs> no, out. It's, Scott, it's an interesting comment because, you know, quite honestly, I don't really look for people that are necessarily like-minded, but I do want people that are like-valued. Like-valued. That's right. It. Yeah. And that is the key to, as I say all the time, who you are matters more than what you know when you get to a certain stage. And it's always first. And when you feel that, as Scott and I have done reconnecting and working on some project work, you just know it. You know it's right. You know it works. And that's been a pleasure to reconnect and also to see what the success you've had. So if a client is sitting there saying, you know, they're sitting, they're listening in and they're like, my gosh, I want to work with this guy. How do they find you? They can find us at Socium Advisors online or, and or through the Northwestern Mutual website under Scott Underwood. Yeah. And so that's your opportunity for those out there that want to have somebody who's about as client-centric as anybody you'll ever meet and now starting to share with everybody through training opportunities to grow and build out a like-valued firm. So, Greg, I think we're done here. Cool. Only one girlfriend joke. I, we're on the upswing. I appreciate that. Thanks so much, Scott. It was great chatting. Thanks for having me, guys. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for joining us for this edition of the Sea Captain Way podcast. If you found the conversation valuable, please like, share, and post a review on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Sea Captain Coaching and how you can start taking advantage of our purpose-driven coaching guidance, visit us at seacaptaincoaching.com and get the Sea Captain view on navigating uncharted waters of growth. The link is in the show notes. You can also follow us at Sea Captain Coaching on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Wishing you fair winds and a following sea on your journey. Oh, 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 oh,